Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Hey, everyone. I'm very happy to continue our exploration of languages and language families. And today we're going to have a look at the Semitic languages. If that doesn't ring a bell right now, I'm sure you're familiar with some of these languages and even some of the history. Personally, I don't speak any Semitic languages and I have to admit that's one group or so far I haven't attempted to learn one. But through school, um, through history, have become familiar with at least the names of some of these languages and I'm pretty sure it's the same for you. Before we get into it, just a quick disclaimer that I'm not an expert on these languages. The main goal of this video is to tell you something interesting to help you relax, maybe even fall asleep. And if I can do that by sharing some interesting facts, then all the better. The info is mostly from Wikipedia, and of course I will link the sources, these books, in the description box below. Alright, so what are the Semitic languages? We're looking at a map of Africa here. And while a lot of interesting stuff is going on here, we want to focus on the northernmost part. We are here with the Afro-Asiatic languages, that is the larger family. And we are looking, let's have a look here, at the Semitische Sprachen, Semitic languages. So we're hearing these beige and brown tones. We have Arabic. Then we have the Ethiosemitic languages right here. Syriac or I think this would be Neo-Aramaic in English. And here we have Ifrit, or Hebrew. And those are just the modern languages. It is a family that is very, very old and has been extremely influential. But we'll get to that a bit later. Before we go through these one by one, I want to tell you a little bit about the grammar of the Semitic languages. 
because there's a really fascinating aspect. And we're going to take an example from Arabic. So let's put this aside for a second. I want to show you how Semitic languages form their words, how meaning is shifted um, in the Indo-European languages. So for example, English, you would add a suffix, so something at the end of the word, or maybe a prefix, so you would tag it on at the start. Maybe you have a preposition, so you something you add in front of it. But one example that is rather rare is how Semitic languages commonly change their meaning. What I've written down here is K, T, B. Three consonants and they form the root of a group of words that um, are related through meaning. And of course, Without consonants, it can be a bit difficult to pronounce, so let's add some vowels. We have an I here. and then A over here and then we have kitab and that means book I remember that from the Turkish course I took which obviously has borrowed some from the Arabic language now if we want to change the meaning what we do is we don't add uh, something at the end but we change the vowels so, if we switch these two, for example, we get the word for writer, KTB, something to do with writing. In this case, it's not the finished book, but rather it is the person who writes. Maybe we want the plural of book. In that case, we have to change things up again. We're adding two different vowels. to use. So we still have the root KTB, but to use kutub, plural of book, box. And that way you can 
change the verb forms by uh, number, by gender, you can create related words like office or maybe newspaper. You can of course also add um, vowels at the front. We could leave out the vowel here between K and T and so on and so forth. So that is a really fascinating way that Semitic languages work. And we have a little bit of that in English, for example. If you think of the word to run, if we form the past tense of that, it would be ran. So R and N stay the same, but we change the vowel. All right. So let's get into these particular languages. Let's start with the most important one, and that is surely Arabic, at least in terms of the number of speakers. It is also one of the official languages of the UN. So it has an important international status. And it is spoken across a large region. In North Africa, Saudi Arabia, the Levante, which would be this region here, sort of the eastern border of the Mediterranean. And Arabic is a pretty fascinating language. It has about 360 million native speakers, but I've read a comment that said, you know, technically, they're not sure whether those are really native speakers of standard Arabic. Because with Arabic, you have something called diglossia. And that means that you're speaking two versions of the same language. How does this happen? So Arabic dates back to the early first millennia with Islam. It spread from the Arabian Peninsula, across many, many other regions, all the way to the Iberian Peninsula for a while. And in the 8th, 9th century, the classical Arabic that was used at the time was standardized. It was an important language for the religion, and in that way it was fixed. So there's a specific way you have to phrase things, a specific way you have to pronounce things. And the way it is written is prescriptive, so it tells you exactly how to say something. But of course that was a long time ago, more than a thousand years. And the way people speak often differs from that. So you have a language that's sort of moving apart. You have a fixed classical Arabic, and then you have sort of this everyday language that's more colloquial, not as refined, a bit more slang, 
think of the way you speak at home with your family, with your friends, and the way you would write, say, an important email or the way a newspaper would be written. There's a big difference there. Today, this sort of official Arabic is often called modern standard Arabic. That's, you would, that's what you would hear on TV, what you would read in a newspaper. And some linguists make a differentiation with regards to classical Arabic, but from what I understand, that's not always the case. Some also simply see it as two historical versions of the same language. Just one that we use today and one that we used before. A language that has to reply to certain needs of that time. You cannot use the language from over a thousand years ago to talk about, well, newspapers, for example, or phones and computers and the internet, or things like nations and states and parliaments that just didn't exist at the time in that context. So you have to modernize the language and also create new terms. So that's standard Arabic. But at the same time, like I said, there's spoken Arabic. And that's a different thing. With spoken Arabic or colloquial Arabic, they often differ quite strongly from one another. Particularly here, the version in the Maghreb, so the western side of North Africa with Morocco, for example, has a very particular pronunciation that can be difficult for other native speakers to understand. It could be that it's some of the Berber influence on the language. Berber is also an Afro-Asiatic language, so related to Semitic, but not part of that group. And Berber is pretty interesting because it makes do with very, very few vowels. And incidentally, the Arabic spoken in the Maghreb also likes to leave out vowels. So, you know, maybe there's some influence there. At the same time, you also have some influence from the Romance languages of Europe, particularly French. And then if we're moving east, we have Egyptian Arabic, which has quite a lot of influence. We have the Arabic here in the Levante, which has influence from other older forms like Aramaic. We have here the language spoken in Saudi Arabia. And then we also have some variants that are spoken uh, farther away by smaller communities. Now, the way that people use sort of these two forms of the language is by code switching. So depending on the context, they would use more of the regional dialect or they would switch to something more formal. They might also switch, for example, to the dialect spoken in the capital of the city because it is considered to be more beautiful or more prestigious. So that can happen too. And that makes Arabic, I think, pretty interesting. 
One small exemption is here, Maltese-ish, Maltese. That is one of the official languages of the EU. It's Semitic language that diverged from Arabic, so it developed out of a dialect, but it isn't tied back to modern standard Arabic, so there's no more influence from the standard language. It's developing on its own. And it's had a lot of influence from Italian and Sicilian, as you can imagine, which is right here. So there's a bit of an exception. And then, of course, we also have the Arabic script, which I'm sure you've seen. Very, very beautiful example here. different versions. One for the Arabic language. Here's one for Turkish, for Persian, etc. It's an alphabet. However, it's an alphabet that doesn't write vowels, or not all vowels, so maybe that comes a bit of a surprise considering how important the changing vowels are for determining the meaning of a word. But if you're learning Arabic, there are ways to help yourself. You can add little dots or other signs on top or below the line to give you an indication of how to pronounce a word. We see here the name of the letter and here the sound giving in Latin letters and we can see the different forms that it can take. If, for example, a B is written on its own, it looks like this, written from right to left. If it's at the start of the word, it would be shorter. If it's in the middle, again, it takes a different form because it would be connected to the letter before and afterwards. And if it's at the end, it's only connected to the sound before and it has this nice ending here. So it can take at least four different forms. hope to learn how to write this alphabet someday because I think it's really beautiful and it's just nice to move through the letters. But of course, 
is quite different from the alphabets that I know, so a little difficult to memorize. I'll have to see if I can find some time. But we don't want to stay with Arabic, there's some more languages we want to get through. The second largest family is spoken. near the Horn of Africa and there would be Amharic closely related is also this language here, Tigrinya and there are some more smaller ones that aren't listed on this map but then you have a little group here of Semitic languages so basically we're talking about Ethiopia, Eritrea Sudan. Oh my god. Jump over here. A little further. There we are. So it says here Ethiopian and Amharic. Again, this is a bit of an older book, so some of the um, terms can be a little outdated. Now, Amharic is one of those languages that you might not have heard of, but it's the second largest Semitic language with about 32 million speakers, and it's one of the official languages of Ethiopia. There are five altogether. Tigrinya has about 10 million speakers, and both of them are quite old. Amhari can be traced to about the 12th century. They also have their own specific script, that you can see here. This one is called Giz. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. And this one used to be, like Arabic, a script that did not write vowels, only consonants. However, over time, that's changed. But there's a specific way to add the vowels to the writing. And you can see that here. If we take, for example, here, the M, we can see that it looks almost the same, but depending on the vowel, it changes a little bit. So here we have ma, then here's mu, mi, here we have a ma, so I guess that's a long one, and mi, not sure how to correctly pronounce this one here, but again we have a little change in the way that the m is written, and here at the end there's a mu. And that's the case for every letter in this alphabet. So letters that look almost the same, but 
with a little change to indicate the sound of the vowel. And this script originally was used for a language also called Gis. And there was a liturgical language of some Orthodox and Catholic churches at the Horn of Africa. Those churches split from the Catholic Orthodox Church in the 5th century, so a long, long time ago. They had a dispute over the exact nature of Christ. And they refused to go with the um, opinion that there's two sides to the nature of Christ and they said, no, there's just one. But that goes a little too deep into uh, Christian definitions that I frankly am not too familiar with. But it's an interesting little detail. Um, there are some very different churches that personally I was not aware of before learning about the language. One language that you've definitely heard of and that I'm sure you know a lot about is this one here. And the name is given as Ivrit. You probably know it as Hebrew. This language is called square Hebrew because, well, it looks a little square. If we look at these examples here, you can see why the name was chosen. Now, Hebrew again is quite an old language. It's an important language for the so-called book religions. And for a long time, it was only a liturgical language. Initially, of course, it was used in everyday life, but because of the Jewish diaspora, people moved abroad into different parts of the world and they adopted some local languages. So Hebrew was mostly used to read and write, for example, the Torah, to learn religious texts, also to communicate when meeting with groups from further away. But Local languages that developed often took on very different forms. Think of Yiddish, for example, which is very close to German and not so much to the sound of Hebrew as we know it. So about in the year 200, Hebrew was only a sacred language and not one for everyday conversations. However, it was preserved and eventually, as a effectively almost dead language, was revived and modernized. And today it is the official language of Israel. And it's the only example that I know 
were a language that was not used anymore in everyday life was updated to the point that it could be used again so it really is a fully functioning modern standard language today there are about 9 million speakers and it has been claimed that people from antiquity would probably understand modern Hebrew or Ivrit as it's called but of course as with Arabic there are many new concepts both ideas as well as technology that had to be introduced into the language and I think that might cause some problems for uh, people from antiquity and Hebrew is related to another very important Semitic language we have it listed here very very small Syriac or Neo-Aramaic there aren't many speakers anymore of the Aramaic languages but if we go back in time it was one of the most important languages of antiquity it was the lingua franca of this area here meaning a contact language so if you traveled a little bit because maybe you were a merchant you met someone from a different land with a different mother language you would both switch to Aramaic to be able to communicate so a third language there was a contact language We have an example of Aramaic right here And we have different versions There's a papyrus version A Babylonian version And that again gives us a hint of where it was spoken In Babylon they used Semitic languages as well So a lot of these old um, empires the cradle of humanity so to say of modern writing systems of agriculture a lot of those people spoke Semitic Akkadian is another one of those examples you might be familiar with the epic of Gilgamesh that one was written and told in a Semitic language and the fascinating part about these early Semitic languages is that they were hugely influential here for example we have Phoenician again closely related to Aramaic to Hebrew same small family within the Semitic languages and I've mentioned this before Phoenician is sort of the core from which our modern alphabets were developed if we go back even further to Coptic and Egyptian were sometimes turned on their head the meaning that was attached to a symbol changed but eventually we got 
our alphabets from it. So again, a Semitic root to it. And because I said that these Semitic languages are so important to the book religions, think of Hebrew, think of Arabic, Aramaic fits in there too. You've surely heard that if there was a historical figure that was Jesus, he probably would have spoken Aramaic as well. And in terms of names, you can see that A, B, C, etc. is already present here. Aleph, Beth, Gimel. So we have some new Aramaic languages here. We have Hebrew, we have Arabic, and then here Amharic, Tigrinya, and so on. The larger family that the Semitic languages are part of are the Afroasiatic languages, like Berber right here. or Somali, a very important language here, the Horn of Africa. Or here, one of the important languages of Nigeria, Hausa. Also with a great number of speakers. And then, of course, there's also here in Egypt, the Coptic language. Ah, and Maltese. Not to forget that one. So I think it's quite fascinating if we look at all of these different scripts. The beautiful square Hebrew, the wonderful calligraphy of Arabic writing, these very early forms of Aramaic or Phoenician, and they're all part of the same languages. In fact, of course. Some go back even earlier to cuneiform, but I think that takes us a little too far. So I hope you've enjoyed that little exploration, that you feel relaxed and ready to sleep. I'm going to close up here. And I'll see you again next week with some maps.
until then thank you for watching